Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. It feels like everyone is talking about money right now. And not just Cardi B. I'm talking about fiscal policy. Money has been making a lot of headlines lately. Late last year, we saw the collapse of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Most recently, Silicon Valley Bank got what some call a bailout. And there are money moves being made beyond the private sector, too. Late last week, President Joe Biden announced his budget. And today, we're taking a deep dive into it. Not because it stands a chance of passing, but because his proposal lays the groundwork for the fiscal fights we'll see on the Hill this year. Like, the big one looming over the debt ceiling. Instead of making threats about default, which would be catastrophic, let's take that off the table. So, to get to the deets on this budget blueprint, I made a call. I am Joseph Zabayos Roy, and I am the domestic policy and politics reporter for Semaphore. Joseph, welcome to the weeds. Thank you for having me on. I'm a longtime listener, and I uh, always enjoy what you guys do here. Thanks. So... Today, we're going to get into the concept of the president's budget. Presidents rarely get everything they want when it comes to a budget. What is the goal of President Biden releasing this right now? So, you know, budgets are considered really a symbolic document that signal what a president's priorities are. White Houses put them out every year, but it almost always lands with a thud in Congress and lawmakers have their own ideas of where to pour federal dollars and martial government resources. Like, basically, I can think of the budget as, um, at least this budget, as a version of the Chinese balloon that will get shot down really, really quickly over in Congress. <laughs> this budget is pretty expansive. It's going all in on expanding the welfare state once again, most notably through reviving swaths of his Build Back Better agenda. It's not going to go anywhere, especially since Republicans control the House. But I think it gives us a pretty good view of where Biden's head is at in terms of where he wants to put federal spending. And then also it serves as a probably an early view of what his campaign is going to look like in 2024, his probable re-election campaign. Let's get into kind of the nitty gritty of the budget itself. Where are we seeing increased spending in this budget proposal? We're seeing increased spending just... Absolutely across the board, you know, agencies like Treasury and EPA, they benefit in terms of double digit 
increases in their base discretionary funding, commerce, labor, uh, Department of Education also seeing double-digit increases. And there are really few cuts to speak of in this budget. Like, there's very modest cuts to Homeland Security. This is a budget that would establish a much more expansive role for the federal government. And by the end of the budgetary window in 2033, should this budget be enacted as it is, we'd actually be at $10 trillion in annual spending. And that's up from $6.3 trillion currently per year. There aren't that many cuts. And so the money coming in would be increased. And that would be increased via taxes. Can you talk about Biden's tax plan? So I've been thinking about the tax side of things is the Sanders-sized tax agenda from Biden, actually. Because the budget does revive, as I mentioned earlier, swaths of the president's uh, defunct Build Back Better agenda. This includes social spending for affordable child care, the expanded child tax credit, which is really effective at slashing child poverty, universal pre-K, Medicaid expansion, and so much more. And in terms of this, the tax agenda, there's just a lot of uh, aggressive taxes on the wealthiest Americans. It includes raising the corporate tax rate to 28% from its current level of 21%, um, a broad minimum tax targeted at billionaires, and then higher taxes on stock buybacks. So really, Biden here is dialing up the aggressiveness of his tax agenda since he doesn't have to spend time scrounging for congressional support from moderates like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. But, you know, it it is worth noting at this point, too, that um, many of these tax proposals had Democrats squirming when they controlled Congress. And unease around enacting them did stretch beyond uh, Manchin and Cinema, who were responsible for knifing much of Biden's domestic agenda when uh, Democrats held Congress uh, for two years. Is the concern that these tax hikes won't be popular among moderate voters? Why? Why are some Democrats so squeamish about the idea of raising taxes on the wealthy? I think it's fair to say that well-pocketed donors have uh, friends on both sides of the aisle. Mm. Because these tax, these tax like the Biden is proposing is actually pretty popular with the public and even among Republican voters. You know, moderates in the Senate, moderates in the House in the last two years um, when Biden was trying to pass through Build Back Better, they dialed back and modified many of the tax proposals. And then Cinema, most notably, who has all of um, one of her biggest donors is the private equity industry, basically killed all tax rate increases in fall of 2021 around uh, to pay for Build Back Better. And that left Democrats scrambling for alternatives. But um, that really put a knife through um, Biden's efforts to roll back really big pieces of the Trump tax cuts. So we've talked about the money coming in. We've talked about the increased spending. I want to dig into more where we're seeing this increased spending. You mentioned, you know, universal pre-K, child tax credit. So it sounds like child care and early education. Um, Where else are we seeing that increased spending in the Biden budget? Yeah, so child care is definitely a notable area where Biden would like to spend more. So there'd be more government cash for programs like a child care and development block grant. That's basically just uh, federal funding for child care subsidies to poor families. Last year's omnibus provided an extra $1.8 billion. So it's notable that Biden wants to keep ramping up spending to help poor children in this area. There's also a lot of money for Head Start, $13 billion, which sets up early learning services to poor preschoolers, infants, and toddlers. There's also a lot more spending on climate. There's $24 billion for climate resilience, which is, 
you know, a pretty significant sum meant to fortify cities' abilities to withstand severe weather events, floods, wildfires, and storms, which we've been seeing happen with more frequency in the U.S. And then um, we're also seeing um, additional funding for criminal justice reform and efforts to combat crime. There's $18 billion for DOJ law enforcement, and $2 billion of that, I think, goes to ATF, which would help enforce the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is the modest gun safety law that passed last summer. So there's a lot of money in here to also help implement key pieces of the Biden agenda that were implemented either with a party line vote or uh, with Republican support last year. As you were combing through the budget, did anything stick out to you as missing or does this sort of hit everything that the Biden agenda is after right now? There was one big missing piece in my eyes. So we've been seeing a lot more uh, talk about Social Security and Medicare. And what is notable about the Biden budget is that um, to extend Medicare's lifespan, Biden was actually pretty specific of what he wants to do. He wants to subject more drugs to government price negotiations and then use the savings to extend Medicare's solvency. That would be combined with additional taxes on the rich and Under his budget, that would extend Medicare solvency by at least a quarter century. That's in stark contrast to the lack of specifics that Biden laid out on Social Security. Biden only says in the budget that he would allocate funding to shore up the program's administrative capacity, you know, to decrease wait times for for callers and streamlining application process for disability benefits. But again, he avoids laying out how he would uh, extend a Social Security solvency. And it's I think it's pretty notable given that Biden is talking a lot about how he wants to shield both programs from cuts, you know, spending negotiations for Republicans later in the year. But he's not really putting forward a plan himself as to how he would achieve that, at least on Social Security. Why is that? What's his game plan there? Do we know or is it, you know, is it hard to kind of speculate right now? When it comes to Social Security solvency, one of the usual uh, ways that members of both parties, and I think Biden also voted for this like back in 1983, the last time that this was tackled in a comprehensive way, it would be raising the retirement age. And I think it's fair to say that the White House does not want to be seen, especially ahead of a probable re-election campaign for Biden, as endorsing any version of that, of you know raising the retirement age on uh, future beneficiaries. The only thing that Biden said in his budget regarding Social Security in terms of extending solvency was that he wants to ensure that more people pay more. But he basically just throws it at Congress's uh, doorstep, just saying that he would work with them on a solution that would tax higher earners. But he doesn't embrace even his own proposal from 2020 in his 2020 campaign where he wanted to raise the payroll tax cap on earners making above $400,000. So it's pretty surprising that he has not gone that far. It's a little early to say like how Biden would specifically want to tackle this issue other than taxing the rich. There's so many ways you can go about that. Bernie Sanders, for example, just rolled out a bill that would go after the investment income of, of higher earning Americans to extend Social Security solvency. And that combined with raising the payroll tax cap, Sanders would actually do it at $250,000. That would extend Social Security solvency by 75 years, which is the usual... Um, the usual standard by which like lawmakers want to tackle it. Like if they do social security reform, they usually want to extend it by 75 years. I want to talk about the politics of this, particularly the Republicans. You know, they've gone on record saying they're not going to touch either of those programs. But, you know, 
they want to decrease the deficit. They want to balance the budget. Do we know what cuts the Republicans want to make? Sort of. (laughs) It's really, it's kind of chaotic in the House right now in terms of... um, (laughs) Spending negotiations. Yeah, that's not surprising after that. Uh, I mean, the speaker fight, I think, raised uh, the bar was set very chaotically, I will say. Yeah, I think we're going to be in for a very uh, chaotic summer in terms of spending the spending talks. So Republican leaders in the House haven't really laid out concrete cuts that they want to make. And that's the call from Democrats right now. Democrats are just across the board saying, show us your plan, because now Biden has his plan. Democrats now want to see the Republican plan. And so far, we, you know, we have like a little bit of an idea of what they want to do. Republicans are starting to coalesce around the idea of restraining federal spending back to 2022 levels. So, you know, basically paring back spending by like, I think, $130 billion or so. And, you know, they have said they will not touch Social Security, Medicare, defense. So they're really narrowing their own negotiating space here. Because to balance the budget in a decade, as many Republicans say they want to do, you'd basically have to cut all other discretionary spending by at least 70 percent. And that is that's steep. That is really these are really grueling cuts to programs that are popular even among Republican lawmakers. Just think about the subsidies that farmers get. You know, that's you know the farm bill is coming up later in the year. Veterans benefits that would have to be cut. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of unease among Republicans around the eventual budget plan. But again, it does does depend on how specific they get and whether they even coalesce around a plan at all. There's a lot of Democrats who just think that McCarthy will not be able to pull it off with a five-seat majority and that in the end, um, Republicans will cave to Democrats and just pass a clean debt ceiling increase as Democrats have urged all along. We're going to get into the debt ceiling a little more later on in the show, but you know, the budget is out. Republicans are responding. (sighs) What does all of this say about the inevitable fight about the debt ceiling we're going to see this year? Right now, I think Republicans, you know, based on my conversation with lawmakers and aides and lobbyists, you know, right now they're just trying to determine what can actually get 218 votes in the House. You know, different Republican factions are putting, like I mentioned earlier, putting trying to put out budget proposals of their own. Right now, I characterize this basically as a version of the phony war that we saw early in World War II, where, you know, there was a declaration of war, but there was no real fighting until many months later. So I do I do think that we're in kind of like a lull in the fighting and that it's going to pick up later in the summer, especially as um, we start getting closer to projected dates for default, the so-called X date. Moody's Analytics said that it's going to be around mid-August. So, you know, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle don't really feel any pressure to cut a deal right now. And when it comes to the debt ceiling, it's usually been dealt with very last minute. Congress is just basically like a bunch of uh, procrastinating college students. They love to turn in their homework (laughs) at the last minute here. So it's really going to be... Wow, they're just like me for real. (laughs) Like like me for real, for real. (laughs) Yeah, so I think it's going to be... We're not going to see any real movement on this issue until maybe May... When, um, for example, I think it was CBO director Philip Swagel who said that, you know, once Treasury starts getting tax receipts from tax season, we'll have like a better sense of when the Treasury will exhaust its current ability to keep payments going to cover the debt ceiling. That won't happen until May. And um, there's a bit of a window here in terms of when the XA could happen. It could be June, July, August. Really does depend on how much money Treasury has on hand. 
So until then, we're just, I think that we're in for a lot of uh, partisan bickering on both sides, but um, we're not going to see any real movement till, <laughs> till the summer. All right. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for it. Joseph Zabios Roy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again for having me on. Up next, we take a deep dive into that fiscal policy that just keeps coming back. The fight over the debt ceiling. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome back. This is The Weeds. Before the break, we looked at Biden's budget. The new spending, the priorities, the tax hikes. All of this sets us up for the eventual fight over the debt ceiling. I talked to Kathleen Day of the Johns Hopkins University Cary Business School. She's also the author of Broken Bargain, Banks, Bailouts, and The Struggle to Tame Wall Street. Kathleen knows a lot about the debt ceiling, and she's got a lot of opinions about it, too. I know I'm uh, a lone, not a lone voice, but a minority voice in saying I think the debt ceiling is not the worst thing in the world because it reminds us of how much there is. But first, I asked her to clarify some basic but important fiscal fundamentals when it comes to understanding all of this drama. What's the difference between the national debt and the national deficit? So the deficit is the yearly shortfall between the U.S.'s annual budget and what it takes in for that year. And the debt is the accumulated shortfall from all those budgets year after year after year. 
When and why did the U.S. implement a debt ceiling in the first place? All things money have to be okayed by the U.S. Congress, and that is the longstanding, it's in our DNA as Americans, we are mistrustful of government spending our money. So we'd say Congress has to approve any expenditures, has to approve any taxation, has to approve any debt. But in World War I, instead of okaying every single expenditure, it said, wait, let's just say you can borrow up to this much so we don't have to okay it every single time. It was more an administrative thing. So you created the debt ceiling, and it's been with us ever since, and we've had to up it over and over again as we've grown, and upping it isn't necessarily good or necessarily bad. It has to be taken in context. What's our GMP? What's the, how's the economy doing? What's the size of the entire budget? What is it relative to the budget? And usually it's a game of chicken who's going to blink first. But a couple times it's gotten pretty serious. In 1979, there was, for a series of reasons, the government actually didn't pay something it owed right away. And it added, by one estimate, $12 billion to the cost to taxpayers of having to borrow money because of the increased rate they had to pay because there had been this mini default. I remember the fight over the debt ceiling in 2011, but can you tell us more about the 1979 default? So in 1979, the Treasury apparently inadvertently missed payments on some bills that were uh, maturing. And it was partly a fallout and delay from raising the debt ceiling. But uh, it also was a word processing problem, which probably seems quaint to us now. (laughs) Uh, But it was a small delay, but it nonetheless caused what Treasuries had to pay on interest. It raised it by what is known as 60 basis points, which is uh, a basis point is every 1%, uh, 1% interest has 100 basis points. So it basically is like raising the cost of borrowing like a little more than half a percentage point. And so that added, by some estimates, $12 billion to the cost of borrowing that year. In 2011, again, this debt ceiling showdown happened. And until then, People didn't really take it. It's not that people didn't take it seriously, but they thought it was a game of chicken in which at the end of the day, everyone would blink and the United States can still retain its title as the benchmark of financial security, which we are. And not just because of our strong economy, but because of our strong Congress with our democracy in the background, because our economy wouldn't be as strong as it is without our democracy in the background. We can talk about that. Yeah, both the economy and democracy feel very uh, not as strong as they used to be right now. They may not be, and that, that's going to be a problem. But you, China is going to overtake us in the next couple of years as the world's largest economy. You will not see people flocking to China as the benchmark of financial security because it's an authoritarian dictatorship where, who know, you know, investors, they can change whatever they do. They can take over your businesses. You might not get a fair court hearing. We are imperfect by a long shot, but investors love us, including China loves to invest in us, Russia loves to invest in us, everyone loves to invest in us because of our democracy. People know that we have a stable democracy thus far. I'm knocking on wood. Even with these challenges that we've had, we have a court system that works. We have a military that's the the best in the world. We, We have all kinds of things where investors know that really is part and parcel of a robust market is having that political stability, and not just any kind of political stability, you can have political stability with an authoritarian government, but a political stability with democracy. As a consequence of that, 
the U.S. is the benchmark of financial security. And the interest rate on our borrowing on treasuries is considered the least risk borrowing. So that becomes the baseline for the setting of all kinds of other interest rates domestically and worldwide. If we default, we suddenly become a huge risk and we no longer can be deemed as close to risk-free as you can get place to borrow money. So that erodes our standing as the benchmark of financial security. In 2011, the showdown between were we going to let the U.S. default over the debt limit really got very intense. And for the first time, the U.S. was downgraded in its credit rating. It's not me talking. This is Moody's. This is Mark Zandi at Moody. That cost taxpayers billions of dollars in borrowing costs to pay people in the market more money for the added risk they perceived that they were incurring by lending the U.S. government money. I'm I'm curious when, you know, you're the most economically powerful country in the world, like people turn to you to say, this is the benchmark of, you know, economic success. Who do you borrow from? Who who are we borrowing all of this money from? Who is giving us the cash? All over the world, all over the world. U.S. investors own around 30% of it. The Federal Reserve owns, and that changes daily, but somewhere between 10 to 15% of the national debt is owned by the Federal Reserve and as part of its market operations because it buys and sells securities to influence interest rates. And during what that horrible phrase, quantitative eating, easing, when it tries to change or deal with inflation or deflation, but in this case, inflation, it buys and sells securities. So it holds a bunch. The U.S. government holds about 30% of its own treasuries because it's one part of the federal government borrowing from another. And that's where you get that social security. So the social security is technically part of the federal government, but it's, it's cordoned off. It's its own discrete little entity there. So when the U.S. government borrows from it, it's borrowing from itself. So the government owns about 30%. Foreign investors own somewhere between 25 to 30% of U.S. debt. Japan has eclipsed China, but I think Japan and China in that order are the two largest. And then I think comes the U.K. So the world loves us. So they, you know, our enemies abroad love to see us in chaos over this. But at the same time, they're also invested in us. So they don't really want us to collapse. Yeah. Is this a <laughs> national security issue at all? It can be. Uh, during the 2007 meltdown, China and Russia owned a lot of near treasuries. They're called mortgage-backed securities, and they're issued by two government-chartered but publicly traded entities called Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Oh. But you can just think of them as part of the government. But the fact is, they during the housing meltdown, their ability to repay their debt was called into question. One of the things that happened during that meltdown is, uh, this is true, absolutely true, Russia called up China and said, hey, let's dump all our securities that we own in Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae on the market. And of course, if you have everything dumped all at once, it lowers the price significantly and it would have thrown markets into chaos. So China mm. respectfully declined mm. because it wasn't in their interest to do that because they own those holdings. They want to earn money and be repaid for those holdings. Russia was more interested in just going for the jugular. So it can be. Owing so much money to foreign investors can be a national security risk. Yeah. Is having debt actually a good thing or a bad thing? Like, 
I'm thinking of personal finance. And, you know, they say that there are some good forms of debt. Is is it the same for the federal government? Debt is neither good nor bad. Too much debt is bad. Too little debt can be bad. Let me explain it this way. If you if you think about a company who wants to build a new factory, if they have to save up the money to build that factory, that's taking money out of the economy. It's not employing people and it's not making widgets. If they can borrow at a reasonable rate and build the factory, they're employing people, they're making widgets, they're earning money for their investors, plus they're paying down that debt. That's a good way to use debt, right? That's like to bring it to an individual, borrowing to buy a house that you can afford and fits in with your paycheck. Bad borrowing would be if you're borrowing tons of money just to pay big compensation to the top executives and companies do that. That's a bad use of investor money, a bad kind of debt. And it's just the same as a individual buying a house that that person really can't afford, a McMansion, and getting an astronomically large mortgage to pay for that. And then every bit of their income goes to paying that debt rather than to more to other things like going out to dinner or uh, buying a washer dryer or yeah, a new Beyonce car. tickets, for instance. Yeah, yeah, if you can get them. Uh, yeah, yeah, those <laughs> things. So the point is that there's good debt and there's bad debt. Too much debt is bad. Uh, a little bit of debt can be good. So getting down to zero debt isn't necessarily a good thing, but you need to have a rational discussion about it. It's good to have a debt ceiling in the sense, I think it reminds people we do have debt and let's talk about is it good debt, bad debt, what's going on. But it's not a good idea as people are trying to do is to say, okay, we're going to sneak in this debt and then say, okay, the sky's falling. We got to find a place to cut. Let's cut social security because we hate that. That's not a rational mature, responsible way to talk about debt or how Social Security works. And that was the aim of some radicals. You know, lots of people get a Social Security check of all political stripes. And also, let's be honest, Social Security during a downtime is a good thing for the economy because it's still, even in a downtime, in a recession, it's giving people money. At least some money is still being spent in the economy. So Social Security, if Social Security had been privatized as the Bush administration a long time ago, it seems in in history. That's a throwback. Yeah, I remember that. Well, all right, good, uh, because I certainly do. If Social Security had been privatized and we'd gone through the meltdown of 2007, it, the meltdown, as bad as it was, and it was really bad, would have been even that much more worse. Because Social Security, if it had been privatized, people wouldn't have had money to spend. So Social Security provides a balance for the economy in downtimes. And again, it is not borrowing from taxpayers. It's lending to taxpayers. And so if there's a default, if it can't get its money back from taxpayers, that is the way in which Social Security payments would be interrupted. Up next, more on the debt ceiling and if we should just get rid of it altogether. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. 
Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is The Weeds, and we're talking about the debt ceiling. Kathleen, what would be the consequences if we just got rid of the debt ceiling? If we just said, you know what, we don't need this anymore, let's not do it. Congress would have to have a way to automatically okay debt. You could get rid of it, but we'd be where we are just using different words (laughs) because (laughs) Congress would still have to okay debt, would still have to do all these things. Again, I know I'm alone, not a lone voice, but a minority voice in saying I think the debt ceiling is not the worst thing in the world because mm. it reminds us of how much there is. But I do think it's misused by extremists who want to use it as a cudgel to get rid of things that they hate in favor of things that they like. So there's an analogy that I've kind of been using for myself to think about the debt ceiling. And I would love to run it by you to know if, you know, I'm thinking about this correctly. So a lot of people will use the credit card analogy where they say, you know, if you hit your credit card limit, it's just raising it again. I I don't necessarily think of it that way. I think of it almost like a credit score. And there are all these factors that are in your credit score, including sort of the percentage of debt you use. So say if you have a credit card that's for $1,000 and you spent $500 on it, it's going to lower your credit score. But if you go to your bank and request like, okay, give me a line of credit for $10,000, that $500 is still there, but your credit score improves because you're using less of it. Is it is it like that? I think actually the analogy to a credit card is absolutely 100% the way to look at it. And and people know that if you if you try to raise your debt, how much money you can borrow, the credit rating agencies will look at that. They will note that and say, "Oh, you know, Jane Doe is suddenly trying to increase. Uh, we better look at that because that's a potential increased risk. And when you lend money to people, you want to see a couple things. Are they employed? Do they pay their debts or do they take their paycheck and go to the casino and gamble it away? So they, do they have money? Do they repay it? And thirdly, can they afford additional debt? I mean, thinking of this credit card analogy, yeah, your credit's score stays lower if it's just the 500. But, you know, if you have $10,000 to borrow, you're probably going to be like, okay, maybe I can go out to dinner tonight. 
For some people, yeah, and that's the worry. And sometimes your credit card company will raise your debt limit when you don't ask for it because they're hoping that that's what happens. So it's just like a credit card, the national debt. And the analogy with Social Security would be more like a 401k. Mm. If you have savings somewhere, but it's, it's like your savings. Like you can have it your own or 401k. If you borrow from your savings and, and never plan to pay it back, or you plan to pay it back and you don't, that's a problem. So if the government doesn't pay Social Security what it owes Social Security, that would, in fact, push Social Security into dire straits. But back to your credit card analogy, having a credit limit does impose some mental discipline on people that I think is not terrible. But again, it can be misused if you say, well, I'm going to allow you to default on it. And I guess some people would argue, and this is, I can see this argument is you shouldn't have a debt limit unless you mean it. And that unless you really say, if you go up to this, if you go over, then we're going to default. Yeah. Is the is the debt limit the United States version of, okay, we're not going to spend more than this. Is that, is it the same? Yes, it is exactly the same. It's saying we're not going to spend more than this because Congress is saying, we're not going to let you. Remember, they said you can spend this much each year, you can take in this many taxes to pay for it, and you can borrow this much to pay any difference between the two. And if it turns out that you run up against what we say you're allowed to borrow and you still owe more than you're taking in, too bad, you're going to have to default. Well, it's the too bad you're going to have to default that no one it's not that people don't take it seriously. It's that it would be catastrophic if it happened. And yeah, so, how everyone says it will be so bad if we default. What What's going to happen? I want to, what's going to happen to us if we default on this? We will lose our status as the benchmark of financial security. The U.S. cost of borrowing will go way up. So throw markets into a turmoil because in the absence of that benchmark, people will not know where to go to have a benchmark of financial security. And that will, it will raise rates. One, one estimate is that if you defaulted, this was done um, uh, by Moody's and there's different ways to count it, but it's as good a measure as anything. A default on our debt could cause a decline, a 4% decline in gross domestic product. So in, in economic activity, a six, 6 million jobs lost and it could torpedo, it could deplete household wealth by as much as $15 trillion because it would cause the stock market to go crazy. And people don't realize how fundamentally the U.S. and our borrowing and treasury rates are baked into the economic system and are the benchmark of financial security. When there is a crisis, the flight to safety Everybody, the Chinese, the Russians, the Saudis, they buy U.S. treasuries. It's called a flight to safety. So you might go and you might invest in something more risky when times are good. But if there's a crisis, you're going to go into those. And that would no longer be a place to go if we default because people are like, well, we don't we expect eventually you'll repay us. But there's a bigger risk than there used to be. So we're going to have to charge you more. And again, we see in 79, in $79, that costs like $12 billion in added interest costs. 2011, it depleted our rating. That, again, billions of dollars in added interest costs. So if you are trying to lower government expenditures, a default is not the way to do it because then when you do borrow, it's way more expensive for you. With 
such disastrous consequences, not only for the U.S. economy, but for the world economy if this happens. Does that mean if we do default, our creditors likely won't come knocking? It feels like a lose-lose situation for everyone if they ask for their money back. Well, they could do it as what happened with the Russians saying, hey, let's flood the market. Let's sell all our securities. But China said, no, you know what? That will hurt us, too. The world economies are tied, and uh, particularly the Chinese and, and U.S. economy, as much as intentions uh, are growing there between the two countries in large measure because of our different political systems. But their fate is tied to ours. And our fate is tied to theirs in some ways. But no one will benefit by having a default. Now, again, I think a rational investor might say, you know what, they're defaulting now and they didn't pay us back. And that happened in 1979 for some technical reasons. But, you know, they eventually paid. So we'll take a bet that they're going to eventually pay it because it is the United States. And again, absent some truly dystopian type event, the United States government is not likely never to repay its debt, but the cost to borrow will go way up. The investors are going to say, yeah, maybe you'll eventually repay us, but there might, we're not so sure you're going to do it on time anymore, so we're going to have to charge you more. So that would be the consequence. It will become more expensive and a larger portion of our debt, as it is, and a larger portion of our budget will go to paying the expense of borrowing, which is a silly use of money. We should use our good name and our good credit to get the lowest borrowing cost. That's a no-brainer. And I don't know why the extremists in, in Congress don't get it. Every time I think about fiscal policy, I kind of start to have this existential crisis. You know, there's this meme of Drake. It was after, I think, the Toronto Raptors won the championship. And he's just like, look at this. We created this. This didn't exist before we were here. Look around at the square. I promise you right now, we did this. Doesn't matter. And I think of that whenever I think about fiscal policy, because, you know, money is made up. Markets are made up. These are all things that we made up. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's problems of our own making. And I just making sense of that. 100 <laughs> percent. No, that is a very apt analogy. It's absolutely right. Now, money is made up. And I mean, you can go back to Aristotle thousands of years ago who said money, whatever <laughs> people say it. Is. And it's true. Money's a whole nother thing. But the fact is that if you got rid of money, people would reinvent it. They'd either have a bartering system and or money. I mean, money is very useful. And it's very useful to have a government orchestrating whatever people accept for payments. But the bottom line is we do create this. Remember, Congress decides by law what the government can spend. Congress decides what the government can take in to pay for that, i.e. taxes. There's going to be a difference between the two. And there's a shortfall. It's called a deficit, a deficit in the budget. And Congress says, OK, to pay for that, here's how much you can borrow. And if you hit that borrowing, the difference between the two, you're going to have to default. That, in theory, is what Congress has said. Now, Congress, when it push comes to shove, says, OK, we're not really going to make you default. And that's good. But increasingly, there's a radical group who doesn't really understand what would happen if that happened. Kathleen Day, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you. That's all for us today. Thank you to Joseph Zabios Roich and Kathleen Day for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Krishna Ayala engineered this episode. Caitlin Pinzi Moog fact-checked it. 
Our editorial director is A.M. Hall, and I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.